Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the time Eric Bischoff got his ass fired. It's WCW Fall Brawl 1999. Kyush, has there ever been a more shocking fall from grace in wrestling history than Eric Bischoff from 1998 to 1999? I don't even really think there's a comparable one. I mean, I there's literally no wrestling company that has ever been as big as this one was and then fallen into dust. Because there really have only ever been like maybe four wrestling companies that were ever of this size. I yeah. guess Jim Crockett Promotions might be the closest corollary to this, but it was never this they, big. They weren't. Yeah, Crockett wasn't a national promotion. They they were always a regional promotion. WCW yeah, they, was an international promotion at this point. Yeah, and they spent their way into the garbage the way ECW did. Like it had nothing to. This was a totally separate thing. Where just like a company becomes utterly creatively bankrupt inside of one year. And it destroys their business. It also must be said, there have been other times that companies have been bad creatively. But I don't know that we ever saw like an immediate downturn of business in this way. Because I don't ever think that they – WWF, even at its worst, even never really had competition on the level of what WCW is dealing with here to steal away every single one of their fans. It's like a perfect storm of suck. Yeah. So – like we said, this is the end of an era for WCW. This show takes place Sunday, September 12th. I believe Bischoff was fired either that Thursday or that Friday. So literally a couple days before this pay-per-view, which that part of it, it's shocking that they fired him, but also that they would do it right before this pay-per-view is kind of crazy to me that they wouldn't at least like have him run the pay-per-view before they sent him home. It is one of those weird things about wrestling where there's like there's no really good stopping no. point because there's no season finale, right? Yeah. So it's like, well, I mean, you could let him do the pay-per-view, but then Nitro is the very next day. Yeah. Like there's really no good time to make a change. Whereas, yeah, in sports, in other things, it's more like there might be a more opportune time to make this kind of change. Like, I mean, I don't know if he would have stuck around, but if you could have told him like, hey, you know, run things until the end of the year and like, we'll figure out how we're going to restructure here. But they literally just told him, you know, go home. You need time off. And eventually they did bring him back. They bring him back in April the next year to team him up with Vince Russo. But that's its own story for another time. But to put in context, like what he had done in WCW, when he first got you know, promoted to executive producer in 1993 and he would get more power after that. Like he wasn't, you know, he wasn't in charge in 93, but he had at least some stroke at that point. WCW was grossing $30 million a year and losing about 6 million a year on that. In 1998, they grossed more like $200 million and made about $55 million in profit. And WCW's financials are weird, so those numbers could be off or misrepresented in some ways. But you see the insane growth there. Like this is a totally different level of business he's built this into in a couple years. It, that's the bizarre thing is that he's not given more benefit of the doubt because it's not yeah. like this thing like drags ass for five years. Like just think like, for example, and I'm sorry to put you on blast like this, Steve, but Steve's a Lions fan, right? <laughs> so like no matter how yeah. shitty your head coach is, you give him a couple of years yeah. to turn it around. Yeah. No, Especially this is when you crazy. Super Bowl. Yeah. Six months before this, they were still hot. Like they did a giant crowd at the Georgia Dome 
like in January for the finger poke of doom. They did an awesome buy rate um, in February with super brawl for Hogan and flair that did like over 500,000 buys. Like things went downhill pretty quickly after that, but it's still only been, it's been a bad six months. Like it, it's not like they've been down for years and years at this point, like you would expect. Like, on this show, there's a match between Goldberg and DDP. And on it, they're just like, yeah, just eight months ago, they had their yeah. legendary match at Halloween Havoc. And I'm like, that was eight months ago? And you fired the guy who made that. It was not even a full year. Yeah. Like, where is the benefit of the doubt for Eric Bischoff? Where is the opportunity? The funny thing is, if they just stick it out with him for, like, another three years, WWE falls on its ass. And they, that's really what you're waiting for, right? Is for fans to like start looking for an alternative for that. Because you have to assume yeah. that eventually it's going to happen. Yeah, they just... Internal corporate politics. Nobody at Time Warner wanted WCW. Nobody at AOL wanted WCW. And it was just a... It was a different time where just having like a good... Like having a couple million loyal viewers was not as big of a deal at that point. Whereas today, it's everything. I mean, AEW, for all its success, is still doing less viewers than WCW did, even at their bottom. It is interesting how AEW tracks so clearly with like WCW in this era, like in 97, 98, WCW was absolutely like d- annihilating anything AEW has ever done and anything WWE is doing now, obviously. But like it is, it's pretty close, honestly. I think AEW has recently beaten the buy rate for this show, which isn't, I guess, a huge surprise because this show kind of sucks. Yeah. But still, it's pretty close. But so, like now, but AEW's lauded as an enormous success, whereas this is just like, wow, you guys fucking suck. I mean, business has collapsed, but it's still way above where it was. Even not even when Bischoff took over, but even in like the early Nitro era, like their ratings have gone from a 4.48 to a 3.38. A 3.38 is still dramatically higher than Nitro was doing when it started and like way higher than their TV had been doing before that. Um their pay-per-views are selling like half of what they had the previous year, but it's still more than they've been selling like in the pre-Hogan years. And um, to put this in perspective, like literally this version of WCW still probably beats every version of WWE that ever existed with the exception of like 1987 to 1990 yeah. and like 1997 to 2001. Like yeah. it, it's still historically one of the greatest and most over wrestling promotions there ever was. What Vince McMahon would give to be doing a 3.38 rating today? Jesus Christ, right? Yeah, I don't even know like the rig- like I don't feel like they report the ratings anymore, so we don't have that comparison. It's just the overall viewership numbers. But I know that their 1.7 million viewers doesn't translate to a 3.38 rating. And like, look at the buy rates. Like the buy rate for this one is not good, but like it's not that far from what WWE pay per views are doing right before they went off pay per view. Yeah, like it's. That is what it is. Yeah. Creative has just been bad, like hot shotting the title all over the place. Just nonsense face and heel turns, setting up mysteries like who was the driver of the Hummer and then never paying it off. Like it just constantly feels like they're reaching for things. Um, We covered Bash at the Beach 99 last summer. That was where Randy Savage won the world title from Kevin Nash in a tag match that also had Sting and Sid in it. 
Uh, Savage dropped the belt to Hulk Hogan the next night on Nitro. Hogan was coming back from an absence, putting the belt on Hogan, which had always been a reliable draw in the past, did not you know do anything for the ratings this time. And a couple weeks after that, they played like one of the few cards left in their deck. They turned Hogan back to the red and yellow. Um, it's the first time he'd played this character since joining the NWO in 1996. You know, it was a cool moment and it got a huge reaction when he first came out, but did nothing for ratings. And like, I think when you look back on it, the problem is he was never over playing this character in WCW. They tried so hard when he first got to WCW to make red and yellow Hulk Hogan come alive again. And the truth is, is that a lot of their fan base hated red and yellow Hulk Hogan, resented him. Especially in places like the Carolinas, where this show takes place, like he could, get, he would get good reactions in like WWF towns in Detroit, in Chicago, in the Northeast. But when they were in the South, like when they were in WCW country, people were not into this. It's just like Black Saturday, right? Yeah. Hulk Hogan was the face of that. It wasn't really people didn't really know Vince McMahon necessarily. Like Hulk Hogan was the face of that other wrestling promotion that's not ours. So he felt like a foreigner when he came in. That was part of his success with the NWO, is that people wanted to boo him. They wanted to hate Hulk Hogan, because they did. They genuinely did. And, like, when people say that they everyone, like, kind of watched both shows and they weren't loyal to either one, I think we brought this up on the show a number of times, is just I do think that a lot of people were loyal to one or the other. And when Hogan went back to WWE, you saw just all the nostalgia was in that company. None of it was here. Uh, Hogan beat Nash to retain the title in a retirement match at Road Wild in August. Believe it or not, Kevin Nash did not stay retired. What? Yeah. I think he wanted to focus more on booking, which ironically he was going to get pulled out of that role in you know a couple weeks when they bring in Vince Russo. How do you feel he did at that role? Terribly. Yeah. I mean, you just look the book in from this year is awful. And I don't know how much like I I don't know how much was him, how much was Sullivan, how much was Dis- Dusty, how much was Bischoff. But like just I think objectively their book in this year was not good. Like they did not have long, good long term stories. They hot shotted the title a ton and devalued it. They made a bunch of nonsense face and heel turns like they were just flailing. I feel like Kevin, like, have you ever been at work and there's one guy who just cares way more than everybody else? Yeah. And so he just rises up the ladder. I feel like at this point, everyone else is checked out and Kevin's like, well, I guess I got a couple ideas. And he's just like, cool, here's the pencil, kid. Get in there. So Bischoff is trying a lot of, you know, unusual things to try to pop business. Uh, they were going to do a million dollar giveaway and this just kind of quietly got dropped. I assume this was, you know, insured the way these kinds of contests usually are. I don't think he was actually just going to give away a million dollars. How is this the third million dollar giveaway we discussed this summer? Um, They brought in Master P to wrestle. That did not go well. He caused a lot of problems backstage. You know what else caused a lot of problems? The stable of racists they invented to go up against it. I, I... I kind of love the West Texas Rednecks. <laughs> we'll talk about them later. Uh-huh. Uh, they brought back Dennis Rodman again, allegedly Ooh. paid him a million. Dennis Rodman was not cool anymore at this point. At this point, like Dennis Rodman had gone from like, 
he was always a freak show, but by this point it was just like he could, he wasn't a good basketball player anymore. He was just a sideshow at this point. Yeah, and everyone had kind of kind of gotten used to his act, and part of the problem too was just that he wasn't. He was so far off the mental health reservation at this point, yeah. and he didn't have basketball to kind of keep him in line. So, like, things were slipping real hard. Yeah. Um, they had Kiss perform on Nitro, which I have lots of thoughts on this that we'll talk about in a second. He does. And brought in a character called the Kiss Demon that yeah. allegedly caught a, cost a bunch of money to produce. Um, there was plans for some kind of WCW Nitro cartoon that got dropped. I think that, that was some kind of Bischoff trying to get into Hollywood deal. There was felt like there was a lot of that going. Like Bischoff like looking for an exit to try to get into movies, because this is also around the time Ready to Rumble is getting made. I'm honestly kind of surprised that didn't work out for him. Possibly it did because like the real connections didn't want anything to do with wrestling. So they didn't want anything to do with him, but he got pretty close. If you, if you really think about it. Yeah. Talk about the kiss thing. Everybody has heard, you know, Eric Bischoff brought in kiss to perform on nitro, paid them half a million dollars. It drew the worst rating in nitro history. I think most of that is true. But there's some important additional context that people always miss here. Um, New Line Cinema, which is a division of Turner, was releasing the movie Detroit Rock City that August, which is it's not a good movie, but it's a movie about a kid who's a Kiss mega fan, like hitchhiking to go see the Kiss show in Detroit. I think None you of could that fairly really call it a cult classic. I mean, a lot of people liked yeah. it at the time. Yeah, it, it was, I don't know, it was like an almost famous knockoff, I feel like, was that yeah, kind of time. genre of movie. But yeah, anyway, that movie was being released like the weekend before they did this. So this was just a corporate synergy thing. I mean, that makes total sense. Like, anytime you're part of a big corporation, you're going to be required to interact with them on some level. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's positive for both ends. Like... AEW getting Shaq because they both work for TNT. That makes total sense. It works for everybody. That's great. In this particular case, I don't know what kind of legs Kiss really had. Though, as you pointed out, yeah. like, they, they were on their revival tour. Like, yeah. makes some sense. Yeah. I mean, it was not, I will not say this was a good idea or anything, but this was just, I mean, I don't even know that this was his idea versus this was just something he was at. Like, you're going to do these kinds of favors when you're owned by a gigantic entertainment company. Like, it's just like WWE does stuff like this too. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's not necessarily cross synergy, but this isn't that different from doing like a P. Diddy concert at WrestleMania 20 years after he was relevant. Like, it's really not that different. Except in this case, they're not the ones who chose to do it, necessarily. Um, so, <laughs> but for some reason, they had to go even further with the KISS thing, and they were planning to do a like, joint KISS concert slash pay-per-view on New Year's Eve that was going to be called New Year's Evil. Yeah. This, this is a little insane, that they were going to run a stadium show for... I, I don't think they had ever run a stadium pay-per-view before. They'd just done stadium nitros. They're going to run a stadium show. It was going to be like half kiss concert, half wrestling show. This actually sounds insane. I don't know that this was going to work. This has never worked. They've done like wrestling matches in front of big crowds before that are here for something else. And it always bombs horribly. 
because those people aren't here to see wrestling. And then they've done music in front of wrestling crowds, which doesn't work because they're not here for music. They don't really work together. Though I think WWE, didn't they just do something like this with like Bianca at like a hip hop festival? Uh, I must have missed that. Yeah, I was on an episode of SmackDown where they like taped one match and like randomly aired it on SmackDown hmm. like in the middle of the show. Because I think like Wally was like their connection to that hip hop festival. Yeah. So that was actually a pretty cool idea. I don't think the fans really enjoyed it that much, but like. This is an, an idea that only Eric Bischoff has ever had or tried. It just was never going to work. Yeah. So, I mean, on the whole, like, obviously business is downhill. I think more than anything else, he was just kind of burned out after just years and years of being I, – I don't know how anybody does this. Like, only Vince McMahon, I feel like, has run this kind of schedule for such a long period of time. And Vince just isn't human. The other thing about Vince is – Vince actually owns the company, so he has nobody to answer to. Whereas, like, Bischoff had all sorts of corporate people to answer to at Turner. Like, I understand how this wore him out. The travel, no off-season, live shows every single week. Like, all these corporate battles he's fighting where he's getting his budget. He's getting his budget cut back and being asked to do more with less money. Like, I think he said he had thought about resigning in 1998 and he should have, like he yeah. should have gone out on top. Like that would have been a very different situation for him. If he had just been like, look, I need a break. Like then he would have been a pretty hot commodity and they might've actually just promoted him. Absolutely. I think one of the things too, that always is interesting to me is that like, there are very, very few people who have ever been in the particular place that Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon have been in. And I feel like Vince really respects those other people. Like, even if he doesn't express it outwardly, like, he always goes back to the people who he knows have, like, been the ring bearers. Like, oh, I see in your eyes that you've had the world's worst anxiety. Yeah. So, you know, he had, said he had a meeting with, Har- like, a call, you know, phone call with Harvey Schiller where, you know, he just kind of confided in him, you know, Things aren't going well. And Schiller kind of pumped him up, was like, okay, you know, we'll get through this. We can turn this around. It's been a rough patch, but, you know, we still believe in you. And then he talked to Bill Bush, who, you know, was another, like, I think he did, like, finance for WCW. He was on the business side. And Bischoff confided in Bill Bush that he was thinking of resigning. And then the next day, he got called into a meeting with Harvey Schiller, who told him he was sending him home. So, Presumably Bush snitched to Schiller that Bischoff had told him he was thinking of resigning and that led them to fire him. And it must be said, I think Bischoff has said this a number of times, too, that like Harvey Schiller really always had WCW and Eric Bischoff's back pretty frequently with like the higher ups because he was the guy who had to go to the higher ups and be like, now, guys, I know this is some contemptible bullshit that we have on our payroll, but. but It's Ted's favorite thing, and Ted gets what he wants. And they're doing a good job, guys. Just leave Eric alone. Ted Ted Turner had a good theory here, which was just that wrestling, even if it didn't make that much money, drew eyeballs to his network and allowed other things to make money on it. And it's absolutely true. Yeah. Like, there's a reason they've finally gone back to wrestling after all these years. It's cheap to produce. It is. Gets eyeballs automatically every time. Incredibly loyal audience. Even if you you can change the time, change the channel, people will still find it. 
this is literally the bare minimum WCW viewers. Like everyone has jumped off the bus and it's still a shitload of people yeah. that you can lead into. I don't know, whatever the TNT equivalent of LaFemme Nikita was. So Bischoff drove home. He told his wife what happened and then he flew to Wyoming and stayed out there for a while. That was my Sounds favorite part. Of his, that's my favorite part of his book. Just the chapter. Just like, yeah, so I went fly fishing for like, two months straight <laughs> yeah. talk to anyone yeah <laughs> heaven for this man like all eric bischoff ever wanted was to be left the fuck alone <laughs> he lives out in wyoming full time now the idea and that makes it so much funnier when he just came back to wwf and he like literally they brought him in he's just like well I really wish I were fly fishing. I'm just going to sit in catering and eat. <laughs> if, if we want, yeah, if we want to talk about spectacular falls from grace, the one he had in WWE is up there too. That that's just oh, you gave me. I think we've got a show coming up where we're finally going to get to talk about that. Thank God. Oh, you gave me control of a multi-million dollar corporation. That's cool. Oh, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm gonna go get some mac and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> gonna hang out. Just hang out and cater in for three months until they fire me. Somebody else will figure it out. It's fine. <laughs> oh man. Um. So the show has to go on. So they still have to do this pay per view. Uh, Bill Bush is put in charge of the business side of things. He's you know an accountant. He's a money guy. So they expect him to straighten out the finances. Um. Craig Leathers, who's the executive producer, is like overseeing the creative aspect of the show and the booking committee is still Kevin Sullivan, Dusty Rhodes and Kevin Nash. That is interesting because it's basically like Vince gets fired by the board of directors and Kevin Dunn takes over, like, yeah. which is a horrible living nightmare. I mean, it's, this was, this was short term and then they end up getting Vince Russo not long after this, which is one of the all time like rabbits pulled out of a hat. Do you think that they had any idea that he was available at this point? I wonder. I feel like somebody must have been talking. But who? I'm trying to think of who they have who would have been talking to him. Like maybe Brett. And I think him and Russo got along pretty well. They may have started talking after the Owen thing. I was about to say because like maybe at like Owen's funeral. Apparently a lot of business got done at Owen's funeral. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, like a lot, lot of guys. That that's sounds. where like most of the radicals got their into WWF, where they yeah. started talking to people. Like that. Was the most business done at the funeral of all time. Brett and Vince had like a covert meeting in a park. Yeah. A lot of interesting things happened there. On another note, how fucking cool is it that AEW has a deal with Owens Estate? I am so fucking excited. Yeah. And I have been laughing very hard all day at all of the people online who were just like, this is bullshit. He should have done it with WWE. AEW had nothing to do with Owen Hart. And y'all can just shut the fuck up. This is very cool. This is just the idea that we'll get to, like, do something Owen Hart related to honor him after all these years is very awesome. And it won't have any of those, like, it won't have any of those squicky connotations that sometimes come where people come crawling back to Vince, you know? Yeah. This will feel better. So the main event here is going to be Hulk Hogan defending the WCW title against Sting. Uh, The storyline is that Lex Luger is stirring up dissension between Sting and Hogan by trying to convince Sting that he can't trust Hogan. Like, you know, he found a picture of Hogan with a white Hummer, just like the one that hit Kevin Nash's limo. Like, you know, 
Sting and Hogan are talking in the locker room and the lights go out and Sting is laid out and Luger blames Hogan, like this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's very much like the Luger Tatanka storyline. Like it feels inspired by that. There's something about Lex Luger and we, we've really kind of covered this in pieces throughout his career, but let's like kind of zone in on it here because his entire career literally from like the eighties on has literally been about the story no one trusts Lex Luger. He's and an inherently untrustworthy dickhead. Constantly, everyone assumes he's the villain in every scenario. The only man in the entire world who has ever trusted Lex Luger for even one fucking second is Sting. And he's always had Luger's back. And he's never truly been proven wrong. Like, Luger never betrayed Sting, even though it looked like he was going to 150 different times. Yeah. And so... That, that's really the crux of this story is that it's happening again. And Hogan is trying to convince Sting that like Luger's the bad one, but Sting won't budge because Sting has an unshakable faith in dickhead Lex Luger. Yeah. So to get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, September 12th, 1999. We are at the Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, home of the Wake Forest Demon Deacons of the Hell ACC. Yeah. So my, this is a very WCW town. Yes. That's actually my favorite college basketball team growing up. Yeah? Fully because of Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan. That's Hell fair. Yeah. That's, that's fair. Um, this was, like, I think oh, I think either every fall brawl here was here or just most of them. This was, you know, the recurring home of WCW fall brawl. Um, and there was something right about that. There was some because they usually did war games at fall brawl, yeah. and there was something right about having it in the Crockett County. In Crockett Country, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in attendance, we have 7,491 people. 3,347 of them paid for a $97,000 gate. Uh, even with paper, the building's only half full, and they couldn't even gross a hundred grand for a pay-per-view. Can you, um, like, what did people in fucking North Carolina have to do <laughs> that was so fucking good that they wouldn't come to a free Hogan Sting match? You know what I, I mean? I know. Maybe it was there a big Carolina Panthers game this day? I, it's just kind of ridiculous to me, like... WCW is on its ass, yeah, but it's not that on its ass that yeah. like you wouldn't go to a free WCW no, pay per view. There's still tons of stars on this pay per view. Like there's Vir- tons. Virtually of shit. every match has a star in it. Absolutely. Buy rate 0.35 for 135,000 buys. That had to be the lowest number they'd done in years. That's so depressing. Because, like, again, this is a there's a lot of stars on this show. It's a pretty big show. Hogan and Sting is the main event. They did one of the biggest buy rates of all time less than two years before this. Hogan's back in the red and yellow. They had to have thought that would have stirred some interest up. Goldberg versus DDP's on the undercard. They just drew out the ass at Halloween Havoc the year before. Yeah, so th- that's down from 275,000 the previous year for the War Games match. Should also note this is the first fall brawl ever without a War Games match. I have no idea why. I, As we're going to get to, it should have had one. Yeah. On commentary, we've got Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Bobby Heenan. I thought they were pretty good tonight. I enjoyed them. You can tell that the passion's gone out of Tony, which yes. is depressing. 
And Heenan. Heenan never really cared that much about WCW. No, but like, and he especially doesn't really care now because there's just nothing really going on that interests him. You can tell when he's interested. Literally, like, the only time in the whole show that his voice raises an octave into, like, interest territory is when he's talking about Brian Hildebrand, who has just died. Which is very sad, and Heenan is clearly very emotional about it. Opening promo is all about whether you can trust Hulk Hogan. No, you can't. Uh, the announcers welcome us to the show, go through the matches for tonight, and then we've got our opener with uh, the Filthy Animals against the Insane Clown Posse and Vampiro. Oh, man, this is not Jim Crockett Promotions anymore. we got I the just, ICP. I just want to make this clear. I, I, I've said on the show before but we may have new listeners out there that I don't look at what's on these shows beforehand. <laughs> so every once in a while, Steve will really slip me like a steaming turd of a match. And then I'll just look at him like, dude, come on. Cool. Um, ICP and Vampiro's music is definitely dubbed. This is definitely like generic creator wrestler music from WWE 2K. Oh yeah. Big time. I, I assume they're coming out to an ICP song that they haven't paid for the license for. I have to imagine, though, to pull back the curtain, guys, I couldn't name an ICP song if you paid me. I'm really not an ICP fan either, even though aren't they from Detroit? Yes, they are, like, woven into the fabric of Detroit. Kid yeah. Rock was on, like, their first album. Yeah, not, not my kind of music. It's the whole thing. Uh... So the filthy animals are Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio, and Billy Kidman. Rey is unmasked, looking like a 12-year-old and wearing baggy trousers. Looks awful. It's so difficult to go back oh, and God, watch stuff. Oh, God, he died. That. He bleached his hair, too. Yes. This is the debut of his whole new oh. thing. Oh. Like, this is the beginning of it. And, like, it's so hard to go back to the 90s now and judge people for the way that they look. Because, I mean, come on. Everyone looked bad at certain points in the 90s. But this is the most 90s shit you will ever see in your fucking life. It's, like, just, like, the white tank tops and, like, the jean shorts and... Kidman's long, greasy hair. They look like assholes. I love that Eddie refuses to partake in this. Eddie just wears his tights. They both come out in their jean shit together, and then Eddie, like, slinks from behind, like... Oh, no, Holmes, I'm not I'm not with them. I'm not with I don't know these guys. I just don't like ICP. Can we just hurry this along? Um, The crowd was oddly rowdy for the start of this match. I don't know who was so over here. It's possible it was ICP. (laughs) Look, I I don't want to disparage them completely without juggalos in the crowd, although North Carolina is juggalo territory. There's juggalos everywhere, man. It's yeah. it's an epidemic. Uh, look, I, we're not going to sit here and shit on ICP completely. For whatever reason, they have some sort of appeal, like, in, in some sort of charisma in a way that has gotten them a gigantic fan base. And bully for them. I got nothing particularly bad to say about ICP that I'm sure they wouldn't say about themselves. But this sucks ass. This was a horrific, horrendous... I mean... Okay, it's actually a pretty decent match, but that is entirely because of the Filthy Animals and Vampiro. ICP are truly some of the worst wrestlers I've ever seen in a major pro wrestling promotion. Like, they don't appear to know how to wrestle at all. Now, Shaggy Tudo, according to himself, was an independent wrestler in 1990, 
where he met Sabu and Rob Van Dam during their early appearances and they stayed friends for life. I literally committed to memory their entire Wikipedia page. It was fascinating reading. I highly recommend it. But yeah, they were just wretched here. Like it's it's good to see just as a reminder what actual bad wrestling looks like. Like people who who have no timing, no crispness, no technical skill to realize how much the guys you think suck are actually, you know, perfectly competent professionals compared to these guys. Yeah, let's be perfectly clear. Baron Corbin could wrestle like fucking light speed circles around these assholes. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, at the in the end game, Vampiro hits a gigantic hip toss off the top on Kidman. He turns around into a missile drop kick from Eddie. Kidman follows up with the shooting star press where he just crushes Vampiro's face with his knee. That was brutal. Why did people let him do oh this move? Oh, my God. Did he ever not hurt anybody with this move? It's kind of ridiculous because, like, it only gets worse with time. When he goes to WWE and he gains 50 pounds of pure yeah. brick muscle for no particular reason, steroids. And it's really, 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 really dangerous. Like, he almost kills Chavo Guerrero. Yeah. And then they just keep letting him do it. Why? Yeah. Uh, inexplicably, they gave this match 15 minutes. 15 fucking minutes. This is the, the second longest match on the show. God, what was the longest? It's Hogan's thing. Oh, God, that didn't need to be 15 minutes either. Yeah, this this is only a minute shorter than the main event. And Ugh. it is three minutes longer than anything else. That's what they decided to do. And then we go backstage to the WCW.com station where some dude whose name I didn't catch is talking to the revolution. Uh, Saturn guarantees a clean sweep tonight and they all walk away. There's nothing you can say really about this segment other than that. There's going to be a clean sweep tonight, just not the one they wanted. The revolution may cumulatively have the least charisma of any stable that's ever existed. (laughs) So it's, Benoit, Saturn, Malenko, and Shane Douglas. What a bunch of assholes. And here's the thing. Like, you can construct I, – I get what they're going for. They're, bas- they're just trying to create what the radicals become, right? Yeah. And that's a good idea for a stable. They do not have the right people in that stable. Like, Benoit and Perry Saturn, sure. Malenko was a weird fit in the radicals, but, like, he, he's like a guy, okay – you really need to have that Eddie guy in there. And Shane Douglas is not that fucking guy. <laughs> Even though Shane Douglas is pretty much the same age as the rest of the guys, he feels about 30 years older and much less interesting. <laughs> Next up for the cruiserweight title, we've got Lenny Lane defending against Kaz Hayashi. Uh, the WWE <sighs> cruiserweight division has fallen a long way from the Steve, days you- of Rey Mysterio Ultimo Dragon, Dean Malenko, Jushin Liger. This was an interesting one for me because WCW has in various times been like overtly racist towards Asian people that appeared on their shows. But they were actually pretty respectful of Kaz Ayashi here. Oh, and he's great. He's fucking awesome. And the Lenny Lane thing, it's so clear it's obviously supposed to be a gay gimmick, but it's clear that standards and practices isn't letting them go there. And like, 
for the longest time, it's been like sort of a go-to of like this is like the mo- the most embarrassing like attempt to portray a gay character. It's not even remotely close to the most embarrassing attempt to portray a gay character. It just comes off super lame. Like yeah. it just doesn't work. And like Lodi's not good, so it's all about Lenny's matches. <laughs> so He's really, not all that good either. The Lenny Lane character was just by itself, and he was just like a goofy weirdo. Like it honestly wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> Lenny Lanes doesn't suck. I don't He's understand not, how he becomes the cruiserweight champion. They still have a ton of great options for that. Did, and, yeah, you remember who we said was in the opening match? Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio, and Kidman. And this is during an era where they just start trying out weird new people, like the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea gets the pelt for a while. Yeah. Um, this is despite what we just talked about, a pretty good match. Like, the crowd does get into it just because the guys work hard. Uh, Kaz is really impressive. Like, he's definitely got it going in the ring. Some really great high-flying moves. Um, But Lenny Lane gets the win with the skull-crushing finale. I think it was more the stroke than the skull-crushing finale, but either way. Yeah. Did he have to stop doing that move when Jarrett came over? Probably. I'm sure nobody really noticed, but that killed his push brother. I'm actually kind of looking at the list of people who are on the show. Cause I'm trying to figure out if anybody other than Rey Mysterio and Kaz Hayashi are still actively wrestling today. Cause they are. Mm, good question. Um, I mean, I Goldberg mean, Goldberg, but he took 20 years off. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just the two of them. Yeah, that sounds right. Well, I'll pay attention to that as we go through. It's just um, always a fun game to play. <laughs> Next up, Mean Gene is in the ring to interview Sting. He says Luger is close to losing any friendship they've ever had. He warns Luger not to interfere tonight. He says he's got no problem with Hogan until the match starts. And Mean Gene points out that Sting has a chance to become the WCW champion for the ninth time tonight, which is rare territory. That feels wild to me because I can't. I can't think of nine times Sting was champion, you know? No, I mean, they're combining NWA title, WCW title, and probably WCW international title. Yeah. It's just interesting that, like, the closest corollary to Sting in WWF was probably Bret Hart. And, like, Sting is given way more title reigns than Bret Hart was. Yeah, Bret had five, which was the record when he did it. Yeah. Uh, then we've got a no disqualification match with the first family against the revolution. Uh, the first family are Hugh Morris and Brian Knobs being managed by Jimmy Hart. What do Is you make that of the, that tag team? That's the worst tag team ever assembled in the history of professional wrestling, and there is not a second place. Where is Jerry Sags? I could have sworn he was in some of the videos. Did he not yeah. come in at all? I didn't see him. Weird. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on with him. I'll quickly look it up while we talk about this terrible match that they wrestled. <laughs> it's Douglas and Malenko representing the Revolution. Um, they brawl around ringside. Uh, the Revolution get control when Knobs and Sags are posing outside the ring, and Malenko and Douglas hit them with baseball slides. Um, back in the ring, Knobs breaks out the pit stop, which is rubbing his disgusting armpit in Douglas's face. Uh, also, apparently Jerry Sags had retired. So that's what happened. Uh, the Revolution ta- are in control for a while until Douglas gets hit with a cheap shot. He tags out to Malenko. 
Um, Malenko sends Nobbs to the floor, knocks Jimmy Hart down, but then Nobbs trips Malenko and Morris hits the no laughing matter moonsault for the pin. That's a pretty big upset. Almost like somebody on the booking committee has a vendetta against Chris Benoit and his friends. I don't know what you're talking about, Steve. Obviously, yeah. this was... The thing is, it could be Kevin Nash, too. He may just not like the Vanilla Midgets. I can't... But I can't understand the point. Because, like, you have the revolution. And it's literally... They're, like, in eight segments on every show. Yeah. To job them out, relu- like, relentlessly. Like, for what purpose? Like, you're investing so much in this group just to then fuck them over? For Hugh Morris and Brian Knobs? Why? Yeah, can't explain that. I just... And the fact that Hugh Morris and Brian Knobs were ever a team that was assembled, like, what a waste of Jimmy Hart, you know? It's like, you may as well just call them, like, hey, we're doing Hulk Hogan a favor by getting his buddies on the card. Next up, for the TV title, we've got Rick Steiner versus Perry Saturn. What has happened to Rick Steiner? I thought he looked kind of cool here. He was cool, but, like, he looks like he started to melt. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, he looks like he's aged, like, ten years over the past year. Um, Saturn gets the first big move of the match with a suicide dive, but then Steiner kicks Saturn in the nuts while the referee's back is turned. Um Steiner just kind of sits on lots of submissions with no intensity at all, which felt like a staple of his matches at this point. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, he hits a nice belly-to-belly suplex. Saturn comes back with a missile drop kick and a springboard crossbody. Uh, Steiner cuts him off with a power slam. Saturn recovers to hit the Death Valley driver, but then Steiner kicks out. Uh, Steiner slips out of another DVD attempt. He runs Saturn into the corner, and then he goes to the top. Saturn crotches him and goes for a superplex, but Steiner blocks it and throws him off and then hits a Steiner Bulldog for the pin. That feels like a pretty big burial of Saturn. They got his finisher kicked out of and then got beat clean in the middle of the ring. I mean, Rick Steiner is still, like, a, a decently high-up guy, but, like, Perry Saturn should be whooping his ass on pay-per-view. Like, that that should be his role at this point, to lose to people like Paris, Perry Saturn on their way up. Or, yeah, not only does he kick out of the finisher, but he beats him clean. This is... If they weren't already thinking about going to WWF, at this point, yeah. when you're on the ground, Perry's got to be like, fuck this. <laughs> what am I doing here? He's also... The fab, the fascinating thing about Perry Saturn, and this has really been brought to light because I've been basically just watching like G1 Climax and AEW all week. Perry Saturn was trying to wrestle the 2021 style in 1999, yeah. and I, I don't think he knew it. I don't think he was trying to get to a place that didn't exist yet. Oh, uh, Mean Gene interviews Hogan backstage. Uh, Hogan says he just talked to his kids and he swore to them that he wouldn't betray Sting. Really playing it up heavy here. Yeah, I'm sure Nick Hogan was real concerned about that. Uh, and then we've got Berlin against a mystery opponent. Um, this had been promoted as Berlin versus Buff Bagwell, but that doesn't happen here for reasons that are a little unclear. Okay, so I have to say something. I'm not really sure if it's controversial or not. I know that people have shit on Berlin real heavy over the years. I think he looks fucking awesome. 
yeah, I think it's kind of a cool look. I don't it, know if Alex Wright ever quite like figured out how to play the character in the ring. Yeah. But he looks cool. I just I also think it's totally backwards though, because I think the wall should be the wrestler and Berlin should be his manager. I completely agree with that. That makes total sense. Yeah. There's just something about the Berlin character. Something about the a character who only speaks German because he won't deign yeah. to speak English even Seems though he totally super can. Super evil. I, I fucking there's just like some mad scientist shit here that I could really get down on. And in this he gets the best match out of Jim Duggan that I think anyone had since, like, Mid-South. <laughs> Which isn't just, saying a ton, but... I will never, ever forget the Hogan wall thing on Nitro. It's the wall, brother! This building the wall is on top of is, I swear, like, ten miles from the arena. Like, you cannot see him. He looks so tiny up there. And Hogan's trying to be, look, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's the wall, brother. That's the wall right there. I also just want to say that, like, there's nothing wrong with the name, the wall for, like, a bodyguard or whatever. Yeah. But he looks really bad. Like, this, his, like, suit with the arms torn off or whatever, like, he looks like an asshole. <laughs> this is uh, not, like... They try to make him a main eventer later because he's the only guy taller than six dude they have left. But, like, no, it does not work. Uh, Bagwell's replacement is Jim Duggan, who gets a pretty nice pop. Not from me. (laughs) When he came out, the Cuse household did not respond positively. Um, Did you notice Duggan didn't sell shit here? Not at all. at one point, this kind of broke down, like, the Charlotte-Nia Jax match. I kind of liked that about this match, and I don't... Yeah. Maybe it's just that Duggan was like, I'm not selling for this cruiserweight piece of shit. I'm not... We're not doing that here. But, like, Alex Wright is, like, a legitimate shooter. So, like, yeah. it kind of, like, deteriorates into, like, a European-style catch match, and I loved that for a minute. Because Alex Wright, he doesn't want to sell, but, like, Alex Wright just keeps taking him down anyway. Um, Wall hits Duggan with a big clothesline out on the floor. The referee clearly sees it, but doesn't call for a DQ. They just blew the timing on that. And then in the ring, Berlin hits a neckbreaker and gets the pin. Yeah, the neckbreaker kind of took the air out of the sails because that's a really shitty it's finish. Pretty lame finish, yeah. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing quite like a really lame finish to really take the air out of a new debut. Like, hey, this guy's pretty cool. Hey, his looks pretty good. Hey, this match is not bad. Oh, his finish sucks. I don't care about his matches then. Backstage, we see Buff Bagwell complaining to Mike Graham. Uh, he runs out to the ring and hugs Duggan, but Duggan shoves him. I don't know what the... Pur- I mean, I yeah, I don't know what any of this was about, what the purpose of this storyline was. I was really hoping that you had more information because, like... The crux of it, it seemed like Mike Graham was trying to tell him, like, hey, you're not healthy. You can't go out there. I'm sorry. And But then Buff was just like, I don't I know thought what he was. About. I thought Bagwell was saying that he had gotten there late because his flight was delayed. But, like, again, I don't know what, what what that was supposed to lead to. After this, he starts doing the thing where he, like, lays down for La Parca, And then he's like, hey, did I do a good job, Russo? So this is just supposed to be like uh, I don't Buff feel like, Bagwell I mean, is... It feels like a Russo thing, and Russo's not there yet. But you could almost see, like, faint hints of it here, right? Yeah. Like, this is what happens when wrestlers don't get to the building on time. They miss their matches, like, because they're assholes. 
it, it doesn't none of that works that that's all a big disaster people don't want to see behind the curtain the curtain is blocking ugly stuff we don't like Next up, for the WSW World Tag Titles, we've got the West Texas Rednecks defending against Harlem Heat. They're just good old boys. Good old boys. Uh, (laughs) I love that Kurt Hennig is in the West Texas Rednecks. Kurt Hennig is from Minnesota. He's a redneck. It's very funny to me that, like, this... They start off by feuding with the No Limit Soldiers. And it's just one of the biggest miscalculations in WCW history. Yes. That they they intend for the No Limit Soldiers to be the baby faces. Oh, man. That doesn't they, go well. You are a Southern wrestling promotion yeah. promoting primarily to, like, Alabama white dudes. Do you really think that the West Texas Rednecks are going to be the heels in that scenario? Not only are they the baby faces, they produce a, a crappy song yes. called Rap is Crap. Which actually starts getting airplay on country yes. stations. Because racists love racist shit. Yeah. I don't know why this is hard. Man, I, I... So then, after the No Limit Soldiers leave, because they were paying Master P like a million dollars, and they had to stop doing that, they looked, and there are only two other black guys on the roster, yeah. so... So who do they move on to feud with? The other black guys. Booker T and Stevie Ray. Fortunately, the fans love them, so yeah. it actually works making them the baby faces. Uh, yeah, the West Texas Rednecks are uh, Barry Windham and his brother Kendall Windham, who this is the only Kendall Windham I've ever seen. I don't know where else he wrestled other than like WCW in the year 1999. Steve, Kendall Windham, I mean, he wrestled a little bit pretty much everywhere. He had, like, a cup of coffee in Jim Crockett, a cup of coffee in Florida. Like, he did jobs a bunch of places. He wrestled in ECW for a minute. He went on a tour of All Japan, which famously, Dan Spivey hated being his partner so much (laughs) that he just stopped tagging him in during that tour. The, The Windhams are not looking great here. Kendall Windham has one of the worst looks I've ever seen. He looks like homeless Steve Austin. It's bad. And, like, I'm sorry if you're out there listening to this, Kendall Windham. It's nothing personal. You just have one of the worst looks for a wrestling character that I've ever seen. And Barry Windham looks like an old version of Barry Windham. And Kurt Henning is their manager, and we spend every minute of this match wishing he was wrestling. Sweet Jesus. Can you imagine Booker T versus Kurt Hennig? Like, what yeah, we could be watching awesome. instead? I feel like they had a fourth guy. I think it was Bobby Duncan Jr. They were trying to get him over. I just love this t- this whole deal where, like, well, let's just bring back the mid-card from 1990 and see if we can get it over again. Um... Harlem Heat's in control until Barry Windham rakes Stevie Ray's eyes. Uh, there's a hot tag to Booker, but he gets cut off and beaten up by Hennig on the floor. Uh, back in the ring, Booker hits the axe kick, but Barry Windham gets him with a clothesline. They work heat on Booker for the next couple minutes. Booker manages to tag out. It looks like the referee didn't see it. Stevie ignores that. He takes out the rednecks. Hennig catches Ray with the cowbell behind the referee's back. Ray is pinned, but the referee is distracted. 
Booker then hit, get, hits a missile drop kick and gets the pin. He's the legal man because the referee didn't see the tag. That's actually pretty good continuity there. I really like that, actually. That that was way more than I expected from yeah. this. Big pop for the title change, and I thought this was a pretty good match. You could hear genuine enthusiasm and euphoria in, like, Tony Schiavone's voice. Like, you could tell when there were acts that he genuinely cared about and wanted to see win, and it made a huge difference in those matches because he just put so much more effort in, and, like, he really cares about Booker T, and you can tell. Which is probably as good a reason to push Booker a lot harder than this than anything. By the way, uh, Kent, uh, our buddy Wyndham was in jail with his dad in 1992. Yeah. So that happened. Yeah. He's part of the counterfeiting scheme. Next up for the U.S. title, we've got Chris Benoit defending against Sid Vicious. Uh, Sid has been doing a thing where he's trying to match Goldberg's undefeated streak. So he <laughs> interferes in matches, beats guys up, and then has his personal referee count the pins for him. This was a genius gimmick. I loved this. I just have to say that like we, as the most unabashed Sid Marks in the history of the universe, this is the purest <laughs> distillation of awesome Sid booking. <laughs> the idea that you would just be watching like some match between like, oh, it's Chris Benoit versus Rick Steiner, cool. And then Sid just comes out and power bombs everybody and then fake pins them and leaves. That <laughs> rules ass. Sid literally dragging like a referee around from town to town and making him count pins for him. It's so funny. And like the funny thing is there's so much WCW TV. You were saying this before the show started. You could have easily gotten to Goldberg's record if you just kept with it for a little while. Six months if he wrestled on Nitro and Thunder and Saturday night every week, which I think people would have tuned in on Saturday night to see Sid beat somebody every week. If I knew that like Sid was going to powerbomb a motherfucker on every WCW yeah. broadcast, I would tune in every single WCW broadcast just for that. Like yeah. I'm a sucker for that though. I would literally tune into Raw to see like Ryback squashes. I just really like squashes. Wrestling is better when people get absolutely destroyed. It's just it's really fun to see a guy like beat people as definitively as he can possibly do it. Like you see like all of his move set, his coolest moves and they look the coolest that they'll ever look. It's just a good way to get people over. And Sid is really good at powerbombing the shit out of people because he does not care about their safety. Um, the size difference between them is just staggering. Sid is literally close to a foot taller than Benoit. And you know what? Big ups for Sid because Sid sells like his ass yeah. off of Benoit in this match. Like there's Absolutely. no, I'm not going to sell for the little guy it, shit going on. A couple here. months after this, he puts Benoit over. He taps out for him. You could really never say that Sid wouldn't do business like that, except for the parts where he wouldn't do business because he wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when he was there, he'd do business. Uh, Benoit just chops Sid down, works on his legs. On the floor, Benoit throws Sid into the steps. He puts the steps against Sid's legs in the ring post and kicks them. I love that spot. That kicks at Like, he's just chopping Sid down. It's amazing. Uh, Benoit back in the ring goes for a moonsault, but Sid catches him out of the air. Benoit slips out and hits the biggest German suplex I think I've ever seen. I was really worried when he went to do it because I genuinely the thought passed in my head. I don't think Sid knows how to do a German suplex. I don't think he's ever taken one before in his life. Uh, Benoit gets Sid in the crossface. Sid makes it to the ropes. 
Benoit goes to the top, but he misses the diving headbutt. Sid hits a powerbomb to get the win. Uh, probably Sid's best match ever. I mean, it's right up there. It's up there with, like, the Michaels match and, like, stuff like that. I had a lot of fun watching this. I could have watched these two wrestle a fuck ton. Like, this almost feels like something really cool that they hit on. Like, the idea of, like, Sid's the most incredible badass, but, like, Chris Benoit won't stop coming. You know, you could have done a thing where Benoit keeps almost beating him, and Sid is always just too much for him, and then Benoit finally beats him. I mean, that's... That sort of seems like what they were trying to build to, right? Like, eventually when they get to those two wrestling for the actual title, it it felt like a big deal then, even though it really wasn't. Just because I feel like we were all really excited to see this match again. Next up, we've got DDP versus Goldberg. Uh, DDP is the leader of the heel stable, the Jersey Triad, which... Consists of him, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Canyon. Um, Canyon was one of the best things about late WCW. Boy, those are three awesome people, but they were yeah. awesome in very different eras. They were always, they, it was a weird group of guys. Late era Bam Bam Bigelow is kind of a drag. Yeah. Like, he, he's got nothing really left in the tank. DDP doesn't seem like he has all that much left in the tank either. Like, I don't think he just is a he wasn't the same with him as a heel. And like he's going back and trying to do all the things that he did as a heel in like 1995. Yeah. Which is fine, but like that's not the DDP you want to see, right? No, that's not the DDP that got over. He's the fucking people's champion. It just doesn't make sense. It's the weirdest thing. He won the title and they immediately turned him heel. It felt like sabotage. It really does. That sort of feels like something that you could have clung to in, like, the waning days of WCW. It's like, well, at least they like Paige, right? Yeah. No matter what else is going on, they cheer for Paige. Let's, we could just keep the belt on Paige. Uh, Goldberg gets an awesome entrance where he's wow, he walks through the back accompanied by police looking so damn cool. Controversial opinion. Goldberg is cool. <laughs> Uh, as the match starts, DDP has a roll of quarters in his hands, but Goldberg knocks them away. Uh, DDP stalls out on the floor. He tells the crowd if they don't start stop chanting for Goldberg, he's going to walk out, which, of course, that doesn't work, if you can believe that. Yeah, that's pretty good. He's he doing all to, the classic heel stuff. Yeah, he goes to leave through the crowd, but Goldberg chases him down. Uh, back in the ring, Page goes for the diamond cutter, but Goldberg counters with a curtain call. The ref gets bumped, and Paige hits Goldberg with a foreign object. Uh, Paige wears down Goldberg for a while until Goldberg pops up and hits a big kick to the face. Uh, Goldberg goes for a hip toss, but Paige floats over into a DDT. Goldberg recovers. He hits the hip toss as Canyon and Bigelow come down to ringside. Canyon smashes Goldberg with, I think this was a silver plate. I believe it was, yes. Because he's Chris Champagne Canyon. That must have been his caviar. I forgot that. (laughs) Page then hits a Uranagi. Uh, Goldberg takes out both Canyon and Bam Bam with a clothesline. He hits the spear on Page, the jackhammer for the pin. This is pretty good. These guys had great chemistry. Yeah. You really feel like... DDP was one of the people that Goldberg really trusted and would just yeah. do whatever he wanted to do, and that's why the matches were so damn good. It's like, 
Goldberg sells more for DDP than he does for almost anyone else in this company. Even when he's a heel here and most of it's like chicken shit stuff, he's still selling DDP's moves, and that's cool. All right, it's main event time. We've got Hulk Hogan defending the WCW World Heavyweight title against the man called Sting. Uh, The always excellent Michael Buffer is here to do the introductions. Sting is out first. He gets big cheers. Hogan comes out first and second to a decidedly mixed reaction. Lots of boos for the Hulkster here in WCW country. When Hulkster takes off the bandana and throws it to the crowd, I don't know if you noticed, but the person in the crowd just kind of looks at it and looks like they're going to chuck it back in the ring and then someone snatches it out of his hand. And then Bret Hart comes down and just, like, shakes both their hands. I wish the announcers had done a better job explaining this, because I did not know until you told me that this was his grand return after Owen's death. No, he had been back for at least a few weeks, because he was in the locker room for that thing where Luger, where the lights went out. But yeah, he he's only recently come back after his sabbatical, because Owen had died in May. But yeah, I think they were just trying to find something for him to do. Um, it just he feels ends up weird. feuding with Luger after this, if I remember right. It just feels so weird that he just, like, wanders out after their two entrances to be like, hey, guys, nice to see you. Bye. (laughs) In his jeans and his long-sleeved T-shirt and his greasy ponytail. Michael Buffer gives him an introduction as if he's part of this match and he's not. They could have just had him officiate the match. Why didn't they? Again, why wasn't Bret Hart the referee of Hogan versus Sting? How funny is that, that, like, they could have just done it again? Bret Hart's the special guest enforcer. Uh, They start out exchanging holds. Hogan gets control with a scoop slam. Not a lot of heat on this match once it gets going. The first 12 and a half minutes of this match are literally endless. Pretty dreadful. I mean, the first time these two wrestled, it wasn't an electrifying match until the end. And this is, they're slower now. At least Hogan was a clearly defined heel there. Whereas here, here he works kind of heelish, but he just works like Hogan. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a back rake and some biting and an eye rake, but that's just how Hogan wrestles. Like, yeah. Yeah. Lots of punching. They both do 10 punches. Um, Sting hits a crossbody. The Stinger splash. Another Stinger splash. He goes for a third one, but Hogan moves and Sting hits the corner. Hogan hits the big boot. He hits the leg drop. Looks like he's got the pin, but DDP shows up and pulls the referee out of the ring. DDP gets in the ring. He hits the diamond cutter on Hogan. Page puts Sting on top of Hogan and wakes up the referee. I don't really know why this was happening. Yeah, let's be clear. Like I thought that, like, oh... So it turns out the DDP is the person who's been stirring all of this up. That's an interesting angle to take, right? But no, that's not what's happened. DDP isn't even part of this. Uh, Bret Hart shows up and he takes out DDP. Sid shows up. Why not? Just have everybody interfere. Sid literally has nothing to fucking do with this feud or any of these people. Getting revenge on Hogan for WrestleMania 8. It's just... He comes in, he takes a big boot, and he immediately leaves. 
Luger runs in. Hogan hits him with the boot. Um, Sting gets the baseball bat and he nails Hogan with it. This he is throws. A... Go yeah. ahead. I just it's a, yeah, you're right. This is a truly shocking moment. And it's wonderfully done. I want to give total credit to Hulk Hogan on this one because he does some great acting. Yeah. Like he grabs the bat away and he's pointing and like he hands it back to Sting and he's like, I fucking knew it. Luger was the stooge. He turned on you. you I fucking knew it, Sting. Him. And I had your back all along. And he turns his back and he turns back to Sting like, wait. Wait, he's like, uh-oh. And then he gets nailed with the bat. That fucking rules. That's a great turn. Sting throws the bat to Luger. Luger hits Hart with it. Sting puts Hogan in the Scorpion Deathlock. A new referee shows up to call for the bell because Hogan's out. I mean, obviously it's supposed to be a heel turn, but the crowd pops for it. Um, match, not good. The story was good. The twist was good and well executed. They probably should have just cut. I mean, the interference was a little silly. It probably should have just been Luger and maybe Hart getting involved. Like Luger comes down and Hart tries to stop him, I think would have been sufficient. You really should have done more, too, with like Luger gets in the ring and both guys are like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Like, because that's the crux of the story. And instead, that doesn't really happen. And there's like a whole bunch of motherfuckers out there just detracting from it. So that that shouldn't have been that way. But I'll even do you one better, because I really think that this should not have been a singles match for the title. It doesn't really make sense. Like, the whole crux of the storyline is Hulk Hogan trying to convince Sting to trust him. But they're about to fight each other for the title. Why the fuck do they need to trust each other? I just can't follow that logic, you know? If this had been a War Games, yeah. where, like, Hogan joins Sting's team and is like, dude, you can totally trust me. And Sting's like, I don't fucking know. And then maybe, like, Sting, Luger, and Hogan are on the same team against a bunch of heels. And then Sting and Luger turn on Hogan. That fucking kicks ass. This works, but it could have been better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I do kind of shudder to think of what this card looks like if you've got a War Games match on top. Because it wasn't like there was the strongest undercard here anyway. The Revolution would have had to lose a couple more matches. Yeah. They all could have just done double duty and lost twice. <laughs> um, overall, this show, I less than the sum of its parts, I would say. Like, I don't think the matches in a vacuum were bad. It's just clear there's no life in this company at this point. There's something haunted about this company at this point. Yeah. And maybe it's like that losing culture you hear about sometimes that like, not to rag on them again, but sometimes like players go play for the Lions and they're like, man, it fucking sucks here because this place yeah. hasn't won anything in so long. Like you just feel like you can't win. And maybe after a certain number of like weeks of just like, man, everything that could go wrong does and we have no good ideas. Everyone just kind of checks out. It feels like everyone's just kind of checked out. Nobody's really trying. And it kind of sucks. Like that's a if you compare it to what's going on on the other show where everyone's busting their ass and like having the greatest storylines of their careers, it's not hard to see why people are choosing that one. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. It's just sad to see like what became of this company, like how fast they fell from being so successful, so great in 1996, 1997, 1998 to just falling apart at an incredibly rapid rate. It's I, a drag. And I, like we talked about it, I can't think of anything you would do to turn it around at this point. I can't think of 
anything intriguing to do with any of these people. They all just feel stale. I turning Sting heel is not a bad idea, but well, I don't do. know that his heart was really in it. Yeah, like I don't even know how Sting as a heel really works. And like you're clearly building up Sid, and Sting's already a heel, and like who's there for Sting to work with? Goldberg's not over anymore. Like what? Where are you going? The only thing that they're building in this company right now are heels. So like it just doesn't. Maybe you go Sting Bret Hart. Maybe that could be something. But even then, like we don't really get that Bret back. So like it's never gonna really happen. So yeah, I, you and I have been down this road many times before, Steve. We have tried to figure out how you would pull the nose up, and I just it would have required something completely different from what they were currently doing. In that respect, I totally understand why they went to Russo and just let him try a million weird ideas because something drastic had to change. Yeah. Didn't work. Nope. Should have just pushed Booker T. <laughs> totally, totally failed. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, and in an incredible coincidence, we're going from one case of not being able to trust Hulk Hogan to another because next week we're covering Bound for Glory 2010. You have no idea how excited I am when I found out we were doing both versions of that angle at the same time. That fucking rules. Yeah. Um, Bound for Glory 2010 from the Hogan era of TNA. They brought in him and Eric Bischoff to try to recreate the glory of the Monday Night Wars. And oh boy, do they fail terribly. This one's going to be really fun because I think the Hogan era of TNA is always something that you've just kind of regarded with sort of like a, a fascinated apartness. Yes. And I was like deep on broken. Yeah. Yes. Like this was like literally it was like it must have been like a young Steve felt when Vince Russo came in and just lit everything on fire and it was horrible. It felt very similarly, like everything that I loved about this company that was amazing to me just slowly died bit by bit. <laughs> So in the main event, we've got Jeff Hardy versus Kurt Angle versus Mr. Anderson in a three-way match for the TNA World Heavyweight title. Um, is this when RBD got stripped of the title because he had no dates left on his contract? I believe that it happened earlier in the year, yes. Yeah. Um, we've got EV 2.0, the ECW stable, but they can't say ECW, against Fortune in a lethal lockdown match. Why the hell was there a lethal lockdown match at Bound for Glory? Because it's the only kind of match they have that anyone likes. <laughs> oh, man. We've it's got Rob the, Van Dam versus Abyss in a Monsters Ball match. A story based on a, uh, the fact that Abyss wanted to murder him with a stick with spikes on it. Yeah. And the Motor City Machine Guns against the Young Bucks for the tag titles. Holy shit. That... That rules so much ass, and, like, nobody at the time understood. And it's going to be so much fun talking about how TNA utterly rejected and hated the Young Bucks when now they have utterly surpassed them with a company of their very own. That match would draw today if you did it. Like, of you could do that would. match on Dynamite next week, and that would get over. If you brought the guns out on Dynamite and they said, like, hey, we want to come back to face the Bucks one time, you could put it on the main event of a pay-per-view. Yeah. Oh, man, this is going to be a fun one. Um, yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.